Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 657 4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online to agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving higher. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida. It's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. Sean, how are you doing this morning? Doing pretty good. Looking forward to another uh, fun-filled day of excitement. That's what I'm looking forward to. Speaking of excitement, you might hear in the background they're doing some construction upstairs, so it's not my stomach or anything like that making any crazy noises. So <laughs> bear with us here, folks. So, all right, Sean, let's start off here. Let's talk about oil for a little bit. Oil was a little engine that couldn't, and uh, they bought uh, the Biden administration decided they were going to sell, uh, bring out the uh, strategic reserves. And promised to buy everything back when they got in the 70s. Not only did it get to the 70s, got to the low 60s three or four times. Nothing happened. And now we're looking at oil almost to 100 bucks. I guess, Sean, taking a look at the oil marketplace right now. That's going to be pretty expensive to start refilling that uh, strategic reserve now. It's assuming we want to. That's um, true. Good point. Never. Yeah, if, good point. If, if, if one believes in... Uh, the whole world's going to be electric cars, and when there's no demand for gasoline, then uh, we won't need any. Uh, in fact, th- th- one would argue that what Biden did was sell a good portion of the reserve at the best prices we're ever going to see in the rest of our lifetime, if you believe in that narrative. So maybe those, you know, those that have made those decisions, maybe they don't think they ever want to buy it back. See, the, the problem is, though, 
um, they had sort. My understanding is they had sort of made a uh, an agreement with Saudi Arabia that when oil got under seventy, that we would buy oil back for the reserve, that we would support the oil market, and we didn't do it. And I think you know Saudi Arabia got really upset that we weren't supporting the market, and you know the way it was going, we were heading into the sixties and maybe even the fifties, the way it was going. Um, and then they decided they were going to pull production and they did. And through pulling production and from, you know, demand being what it is, uh, all of a sudden the markets tightened up and remember, we don't have a whole lot of strategic petroleum reserve to sell anymore. And we're not selling it that much anymore. So, so most of the excess crew that came on the market was, selling of the strategic petroleum reserve, which if we don't have, that means we're really running at a tight market to a deficit. So then you pull back production, we're really a deficit. So I think it was Saudi Arabia's way of saying, you know, we didn't really appreciate that. Um, and we can make oil a hundred bucks and, and, and make life a little difficult for you guys. And it, it appears to me that's what they've done. Now, what happens after this? Um, you know, will uh, OPEC decide? You know, prices are high enough where they they gotta let they gotta you know bring the money home. Um, probably, you know, I don't really think that it's in their best interest to get the market much over a hundred, because over a hundred you start to deal with demand destruction again, hurting economies again at a time where we have high interest rates and things are fragile. I'm not sure they want to kill the golden goose at the same time. I think they wanted to send a message to Biden. You know, they didn't appreciate that. We're still in control of the oil market. And by the way, if for some reason we were to get back down, um, you know, again, maybe you should rethink not supporting the oil market by buying strategic petroleum reserves. That's my best guess. Not that I'm a, an oil guy or a, a you know, geopolitical expert, but that's my best guess to what's going on here. So, Well, that seems like it makes a little bit of sense when you think about it. I mean... They had three opportunities to do that, and they did nothing. I mean, they could have made like history, like people would have wrote papers about that, and in some you know business school someplace that had been talking about the trade that the U.S. government made because it would have been an epic trade. I mean, it would have been, I mean, a, the single best trade in, in all of trading history. I think would have been there. Oh, that's uh, of that kind of size. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been an incredible trade, but they didn't pull the trigger, and now. You know, now who knows? You know, now all of a sudden something could happen. There could be more geopolitical issues. The economy could rebound. The Fed could, you know, a lot of things could happen. And all of a sudden oil's, you know, back up to where it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. We kind of talked a little bit about this before we started recording it because I'm just curious as I hear <clears throat> the amount of news that comes out of China right now. And especially in a place where so much news is controlled, as you look at um, various uh, news outlets and, and what you can see, you can't really necessarily trust what comes out of China. But if you kind of read between the lines a little bit and see what's happening, there, there's some significant economic issues going on in China right now. So if you look at the the overarching issues with China, we've had they've had two or three 2008 style real estate collapses over the last two or three years, you know, and watching that happen, you've had a 
just a you know you have a whole demographic now of young people coming in that don't necessarily want to work in the in the manufacturing space as much as they want to work in the um, you know computer space the the engineering computer engineering space software engineering space working on those kind of things um, so right now China's in a bit of a pickle when you start looking at their economy some of the parallels that I was thinking about and it was to to Russia in 1989 and what you saw happening there. And I guess, Sean, I'd like your opinion on, is there a possibility that we could wake up one day and China just be a complete hole in the ground someplace? It's certainly always possible when you have a command economy, a, uh, more of a socialistic economy, um, uh, run by essentially an authoritarian. You know, there's really no one that can tell Z no, he'll do whatever right. he wants to do. And maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. Um, Their defense so, minister must have told him no. Somewhere along <laughs> the way. So you know, you know, you usually you know that's a dangerous position to be in, and you know, and and their demographics are so um, unfavorable that unless they were to allow massive immigration into the country, which does not seem like they're doing anytime soon, you know. The only way that they can keep themselves together is they have to massively create increased wealth for the people that remain in their prime consumption years, which are declining. So, so Japan went through this. Japan's you know uh, population cut cut in half, and their economy has stayed flat because they've been able to increase the wealth per citizen so much that even though the numbers are in half, the economic activity is the same and that's like a fantastic scenario like you know japan that, that's a great outcome for japan not to have a declining economy with such terrible dem demographics so the real question in the long run meaning like 10 to 20 years can china do that are they able to create that wealth for the three to five hundred million people that will remain you know in the productive phase enough offset a having of their population. I don't really know if they will or won't, but that's the big challenge. And what they're going through now is some of those early growing pains of what happens when your demographics start to become lopsided, where you have too many old people consuming less, needing more, and, to, and not enough young people uh, to come up underneath to help support the system. So I don't think we're eminently there. Um, I think, you know, it will take some time if, if we're going to get there. Um, but certainly if China does not figure out a way to turn this around and, uh, and provide a, um, a better framework of how they're going to deal with this demographic issue, you know, then, then what's going on now, you know, you'll see more often and it will accelerate. So um, I've been saying uh, in my writings and in my speeches that uh, – you know, we need to be looking elsewhere for demand for agriculture and for commodities. I don't think I think China's sun is set in terms of their them being the go-to person for commodity demand. They're still there. They still have needs, but I think you know we need to be looking at places like India, you know, for maybe new places that are going to that are up and coming that are going to take the baton and really become the driver for commodity growth, energy growth, food growth, and demand. Um, so to me, you know, I'm not really looking for anything exciting in the long term from China, uh, other than you know just some up back and forth oscillation depending upon their economy, 
depending on their production and um, and the geopolitics of the situation. So I think anyone looking for China to be the driver for commodities forward in terms of increased demand and higher prices, I, I don't think they're the engine anymore. They had a they had a twenty year run, but they simply cannot do it anymore uh, demographically, and and they just need to. Uh, uh, figure out a way to remain viable in the long run. So, okay. So demographically, as you, as you talk about looking around the world, <clears throat> most of the world is in a spot where with the exception of like five countries, us being one, most of, um, <clears throat> most of South America being one of those. Um, I mean, even Mexico to some extent is having some demographic issues, but you start looking at like, where, where's that next place at? Because so much of the world is at a point now where there's, they, their birth rates aren't replacing um, the population they have. So I guess as you look out across the world right now, Sean, where do you see that next, quote-unquote, China to be? Well, the only country that has the population <laughs> and ha with the good demographics to really be, to provide the kind of demand, uh, sizable demand to replace what China has been, that I can see is, is, is India. India. I, I yeah. don't really see anybody else. I mean, right now India is pushing through 3.5 to 3.7 trillion GDP. When China crossed that level is when their demand for commodities went through the roof. When we looked at look at Japan, when they were really big buyers of commodities in the late 60s and the 1970s, it's when they crossed about 3.5 trillion GDP that their demand for commodities went through the roof. And now India is now crossing that same threshold and we're starting to see their demand in many of the markets starting to increase to the point where India is feeling the need to restrict exports. Um, what's interesting is, you know, one of the, one of the main reasons that India says the reason that they're halting exports is because they have very, very high domestic prices for everything. Meaning everything is just super high and prices are high and inflation is high. Well, why is that? Because the demand domestically for these items is so strong and the supplies that are available are, are apparently are, are not enough um, based upon what they had been doing with exports. So they've decided to keep the supplies home and start working at knocking those prices down. But I think we're reaching a point where India is found its itself in a, in a positive space economically, but realizing that being the exporter to the world of key agricultural items may no longer be in their best interest and they're starting to figure that maybe you know keeping all this supply at home and working on ways to maybe bring some extra supplies in is the better way to go to manage the long-term growth trajectory because if if they're going from three and a half trillion to 10 trillion or 15 trillion over the next 10 to 15 years Casey you know I don't see how they're they could support that by being a major exporter of these things. I, I don't see how that's going to happen. And so that to me is a, the biggest story of this year is a shifting of India away from an exporter to potentially an importer and, um, and potentially a really, really big importer, especially if weather problems arise and they have short crops, like it looks like they might have this year. So that's to me is the bright spot. Their demographics are phenomenal. Um, you know, the politics are uh, a little chaotic in India, but but at least okay. it has, there, there's some semblance of of um, of uh, of a free economy, of a uh, 
capitalistic economy there that they do vote. And, you know, I mean, it's not a, it's not a command economy like it is in Russia or like it is in, 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 um, China, you know, there, there is a, 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 a rule by many, although Modi is a powerful, uh, leader and, and he, and, you know, he, he, he can oftentimes sway people to his thinking, but it's, he's definitely not an authoritarian and definitely can't, the way their system is structured, he's not able to just do whatever he wants, whenever, however he wants. He still has to have a um, democratic, um, you know, majority in his favor to get things done. So, so at least they have a system that has the ability to self-correct um, and 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 have stupid people get pushed out and have smart people come back in to keep things alive instead of somebody saying it's my way. If you don't agree with me. I'm getting rid of you that, you know, that's the, that's the classic authoritarian model. So it looks to me like to be a really, really uh, up and comer and, and probably the, the biggest economic miracle that's coming is the, the ascension of India onto the global economic scene and how that shifts trade flows, shifts supply, demand prices um, and geopolitical influence. Cause you know, India is on the border there with China, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they're right there China you know I mean Russia I mean they're right in there so they have a they, they will have a role to play the more economically strong they become so right. and they've got Bollywood you gotta think about that too <laughs> they have Bollywood yes alright so let's talk about one thing here so if you're looking at the overall region where, where India is at you talk about them kind of backing away from exports we see them do that this you know a few times this year um, the last couple of years, I actually do some of that stuff. When you start looking at the amount of rice that they export, wheat they export, sugar they export, those kind of things right now, and they, and they shut that off, um, you start looking at countries like you know the Southeast Asia countries um, into Africa where rice is a big deal. Um, where's that coming from? Well, you know, the, the way these things work, if you get a demand side shock like this, it will take time for someone else to find a way to make up the difference, right? So if um, if uh, India's uh, you know ten to twelve million metric tons of sugar exports is no longer going to be available, someone else needs to produce that. Now, of course, no one else can produce that right now. But over time, given the right price um, and the incentives and uh, investment in countries who have the ability to produce more rice. Um, or sugar in the right environment, you know, it will take time. You know, typically these things take approximately, you know, 10 years of high prices and investment and, and reallocating resources to get someone else to make up the difference of a major exporter no longer, you know, being able to do so. Um, but it can be done. It will be done. Uh, but the market needs, but the, the, the reason you have commodity inflationary periods that last between 12 and 15 years is because that's how long it typically takes high prices and investment to eventually find new ways, new supplies to make up for the demand that the, the old system was not able to come up with. And then once we figure that out, then you have a bear market. Then you have a period of, of, a, of extended period of low prices, oversupply as the market then, then kind of reassimilates into this, you know, newfound, um, balance that they've created right now we're only in year three of a typical you know 12 to 15 year commodity inflationary cycle so you know we, we have a long way to go before you know, we're going to find anyone replacing 
India's lost exports. And of course, if they become imports, you know, you'd have to add that on to what the world would need to create at a time that where the volatility will continue to challenge production of just about everything uh, throughout the world. So, all right, one more, one more quick topic here and we'll, we'll shut it down here for this one. So you had the first uh, grain cargo leave the Ukrainian port under the new, new deal, um, since the grain deal ended, right? Um, your thoughts on that, Sean? What What's that mean to the market? And does the market really care? Well, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, the real key will be, you know, is it just a few ships that were trapped in Ukraine that have been left to leave with cargo? Um, or are they going to actually be able to get a shipping lane really going on a daily basis like they like the grain deal had, had caused? Mm-hmm. Um can they do that? Will Russia allow them to do that? The answer is we don't really know other than they have been so far successful in getting some ships that were uh, trapped in Ukraine to get out. Um, obviously, any any movement of grain out of Ukraine um, provides extra supply. It doesn't mean the production in Ukraine is, is going to improve. It doesn't mean that the prices in Ukraine are, are attractive for growing production again. But on, on the margin, psychologically, the market feels that the ending of the grain deal, there's still a, somewhat of a stopcock valve that's been opened that allows some grain to go out. It just keeps the bear, the bearish tone intact for now. You know, It doesn't really necessarily make the market more bearish at current prices, but it certainly doesn't endear any reason for them to back off the pedal of being bearish, and it certainly doesn't bring any bullish buyers to want to take out offers and move the market higher if we're seeing some evidence that maybe uh, Ukraine is able to sh- you know get some grain out on their own without uh, without Russia being on board time will tell whether that's true or not and all it will take is you know Russia bombing one of these ships coming out of the port and and and, and then it's cut off again but for right now the the um, the image of some grain leaving Ukraine, um, it keeps the bears uh, steadfast in their in their view that, that there's no reason to get bullish wheat anytime soon. Gotcha. Okay. All right, Sean. Good stuff as usual. Folks want to reach out to you and get more information about what it is you're doing over to Hacker Financial. What's the best way to do that? Um, we have a Twitter page at Faradex11. We have our website at Hackett H A C K E T T Advisors dot com. We put out some interviews on there. Occasionally we make a few uh, comments. Recently putting out a, a Twitter uh, piece on um, drought in Russia, Ukraine uh, during the planting stage here that could c- create the f- one of the worst uh, starts to the uh, winter wheat crop there in quite a few years. And so, so you know, we're not habitual posters, but we do try to provide enough information for people to stay informed with what we're doing, how we're doing it, to see if we could be of value to them. Right on, Sean. I think you give them pretty good value based on the stuff you send me. I think everybody that wants to get that newsletter should take a hard look at what Sean's doing because there's some stuff in there that uh, I've, I've never heard before and uh, I've heard it before uh, with Sean and I've heard it in other places. So uh, his news is is uh, contrarian and it's also um, seems to be the, the first to the first to trap there. So, Sean, I, I can commend you on what you've been able to put together there on that newsletter. 
I appreciate that, Casey. It's uh, it's a lot of hard work. Don't get everything right, but uh, do my best to try to get the big big ideas mostly right and so far so good. And hopefully, you know that you know that can be uh, maintains because it's uh, it's our mission to help farmers and producers and those in agriculture bring more money home because it's a it's a tough environment out there and every dollar matters. So. Yep. It absolutely does, and I can barely read. So Sean, Sean's doing doing a good job keeping keeping the simple for guys like me to read it. So keep keep doing it, Sean. Keep banging, buddy. We'll do. All right, I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and check out the video version over on the YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Go to LinkedIn. Um, at Moving Iron Podcast as well. Go to Moving Iron LLC to get everything Moving Iron related and uh, see what's happening there. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Let's go with some iron, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 800- 657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hard work.